0: This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by ReDream. Watch the videos, find local events, and join the conversation at redreamproject.org. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Understanding Investments. It's a $215 value for free. You just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash
1: weeds. The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: Okay, what's the most credit we can plausibly claim for this? Right. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Boxes Policy Podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Glacius with me as usual, my colleague Sarah Cliff, Ezra Klein. We're recording it at, at a special time, special afternoon time after a, a long meeting, so we may be uh, rambling and incoherent.
1: I don't think so. In fact, I have a surprise for you, Matt. God I have stolen 2.6 terabytes of your data and leaked it on the internet.
0: Uh, just everywhere. All my terabytes. All my it's terabyte. going to be exciting. That's <laughs> terrible. No, so we're referring, of course, to the... The Panama Papers.
1: Great name for papers,
0: so-called. That has been leaked from the Panamanian law firm Masek Fonseca to a, a huge group of journalists in dozens of countries, not not including me. Um, but they've, <laughs> they've published uh, m- many of the, this is a, a law firm that specializes in setting up uh, shell companies in uh, tax haven countries, especially its its native homeland of, of Panama, and and they've revealed a, a bunch of interesting newsy things about specific politicians, but it's also just been a good sort of opportunity pretext to talk about the general phenomenon of, of tax havens and, and shell companies, which is one of these things... I mean, it's the kind of thing that the media doesn't do a great job with, where we've just sort of known for a long time that these kind of tax shenanigans are happening, and it's never a great opportunity to have like headline, many wealthy individuals <laughs> stash their money in offshore tax havens. But if you have a big leak, then that's news, and, and we can talk And talk to just say, into. this
1: is a very big leak. The prime minister of Iceland has now resigned over the leak. Mm -hmm. turned out he had given a tax (laughs) shelter to his wife. She kept it offshore. He put it in her name the day before he would have had to report it. And that tax shelter is owed a bunch of money by banks that he's negotiating with. I mean, there's some amazing stuff here. So far, not a ton about US companies or individuals, but some wonderful foreign scandals. And, And as Matt says, just a fascinating bit of insight into something that we all knew was going on, but it was so opaque that aside from trying to get indirect measures of its size, it was very, very hard to get people interested in.
2: So I think Matt's the one who has kind of reported on this most and knows the most about it. And one of the things I think, one of the differentiations that's coming up now, and it's like, helpful if you can talk through, how bad do we know this is? I think like the idea of a shell company, like it sounds bad. It sounds like someone's doing something they shouldn't be. And you know one of the things you've been writing on and looking at, like how many of these are people like legitimately like laundering drug money or like doing like what the Prime Minister of Iceland was doing? Versus some wealthy people who are being like very creative with their taxes and doing tax avoidance, I guess, would be yeah, so the there, term you would use. There's
0: sort of two different things in, in play in, in these documents. And one is the idea of, of shell companies. And, and a shell company is basically something that a person or a, a real operating company uses to disguise who the real owner of something is. There's a lot of US-based shell companies for a variety of reasons, as well as foreign ones. And then the other thing that we're seeing here is the use of tax havens, which is basically where you try to put your money in a country where tax levels are low. And so the the specialty of, of Masak Fonseca seems to be at the intersection of the two, right, where if you want to put your money into a tax haven country, and you also want to obscure the fact that it's your money, there's a sort of complicated legal work behind that.
1: Can you give me an example, just stylized, but, but still of why you might want to do this. So you're a company. You're operating out of, let's say, California. You do business overseas. And then what? What is the set of things that might happen here? This is then another thing is the corporate aspect of tax
0: avoidance, right? Which I think is is really best kept a, a little bit separate from right. this. What you have on, on the corporate level, right, is different countries charge different levels of corporate income tax, and if you operate your company on a global basis, you can objectively measure, Apple's a great example of this because they're they're really big and they, they take advantage of a, a lot of aggressive tax planning. If corporate taxes were levied on sales, you could just look around and say, okay, Apple sold so many phones in Germany, so many phones in the US, so many phones in Canada, and divvy up the, the tax that way. But we don't tax corporations that way. They're taxed on their profits. And profit is a measure of your sales minus your costs. And so you can do various things to manipulate the geographical location of your profits. So you can transfer, say, some valuable intellectual property to your Irish subsidiary because Ireland is a very low corporate income tax. And then you can have your Irish subsidiary license the intellectual property to your other subsidiaries in higher tax countries. So that way you might have a lot of sales in Germany where the corporate income tax is high, but your profits are all coming into Ireland where the corporate income tax is low. Then because the United States doesn't charge corporate income tax on your foreign profits, as long as you keep the foreign profits abroad, you accumulate low tax piles of money. A lot of the technology and pharmaceutical companies have done this, which they kind of sit, quote unquote, offshore in the accounts of the foreign subsidiaries. And then you have a lot of political shenanigans about trying to get a a law passed to kind of bring them home cheaply. So that's, that's what corporations are doing. You don't need any kind of uh, shell companies for that because it's, there's some things where it's like the real scandal is what's legal. In this case, there isn't even a scandal. It's like completely known. The companies themselves, they have to explain to their shareholders how they make money and what's going on because they're big public companies. So it's entirely, entirely out in the open, which is different from an individual because if you're an American, right, and you're a rich guy, and you own a lot of stocks, and the stocks pay you dividends, you're not allowed to, formally speaking, to do that kind of thing, to like say, oh, no, it's actually Ezra of Ireland that owns the (laughs) stocks, right? So to sort of avoid taxes on, on your money the way a corporation would, you need to take advantage of some of these shadier possibilities, right? So you could have a Panamanian company that is controlled by you, but that the named directors of are lawyers at this law firm, and then that company owns assets that are in the Cayman Islands, and they are earning you a return on income, which you don't report on your taxes to the IRS, and they can't see that you secretly control them. And then that shell company might say, go buy like a beach house in the Cayman Islands, and then you could go stay there because you in fact own it without tax authorities ever sort of being able to be the wiser. And that kind of thing is, you know, that's illegal. But people can sort of talk themselves into the idea that it's not illegal. The question is, is it's illegal in which country? The idea is you're taking advantage of the fact that the laws in these other countries, they really don't have taxes. You really are allowed to have completely anonymous companies in Panama. You really are allowed to not pay any income tax in the Cayman Islands. So you can set these things up and they're legal there. And you may be an American, but maybe you don't care.
1: One of the things that has been really helpful for me in trying to understand the size of what we're talking about, because this leak is about one law firm that is biting off a piece of this business in one particular, primarily in one particular country. But- about a year ago, Gabriel Zucman, who's an economist, had written a book that is mercifully incredibly short, given the subject matter is quite dense, called The Hidden Wealth of Nations. And, and he finds, using a number of measures that were pretty indirect, but were the best effort anybody had done until now to try to measure the size and scale, that a low end estimate of the amount of money being sheltered in these ways is $7.6 trillion, trillion dollars. And that is roughly 8% of all financial wealth across the world. And he says, by the way, in shows with a number of, uh, across a number of dimensions, this is rising very quickly, uh, very, very, very quickly. I mean, the growth looks almost exponential. And so this is becoming a very clear, routinized, systematic way that people almost in an out-of-the-box fashion can take advantage of this. You don't need to be some kind of genius tax avoider. You just go to one of these companies, people know who these companies are, they're reasonably above board in the countries in which they operate, and you can put your money there. And it's becoming a really significant, according to him, loophole in the global tax system. And I think that the marriage of, I think, having through him and through others a better understanding of the size of this, but now this incredibly vivid example of what it is and how it's going on. Is really for the first time focusing attention in a way that feels to me not just like people lamenting it, but people actually thinking, okay, maybe maybe something has gone awry here that needs to be fixed or dealt with.
2: Yeah, speaking to that routine,est the folks at Planet Money, which is another podcast I love, they've been doing a series of um, podcasts where they're setting up these shell corporations. My favorite is they set one of in Belize called Unbelievable, <laughs> And there's just like... <laughs> That's very good. Be- right. So I, I love their podcast. I recommend it. I think with listeners of the weeds, so we're not being paid to say this. I just like to listen to it. Anyways, they really showed how routine it is where they are some podcast hosts and they just, you know, filled out the paperwork. And then all of a sudden Belize sends them like this stamp that they get to use. They have like an official seal. And all of a sudden, like Unbelievable it is directed by the, the director of their company, is the secretary at the at the law firm that helped them set it up. She calls meetings to order. She, you know, does everything for the company. Their names on it are nowhere to be found. And these are two people who didn't really have to put a lot of time or money into it. They did it kind of like it's a fun experiment for their podcast. And it really speaks to how routine it's become and just how there's a whole industry built around it. Well, and also point.
0: there's a the, the middle ground between sort of individual tax avoidance and, and corporate tax avoidance is what you see happening in partnership firms, right? So if you go to a small hedge fund in, in New York or, or in Connecticut... The company, in a common sense way, you will typically say this company is located in New York, right? We know New York is the center of the global financial industry. We know that London is another important center. And by that, we mean that the human beings who work at these companies and their offices are located there. But the companies are generally Cayman Islands or British Virgin Islands or what have you companies. And these are not secret shell companies. Right. I mean, this is set up. It, it's known they have to do a little marketing and sales. Oftentimes, the principals of the company are well-known political contributors, uh, well-known philanthropical figures, and one reason such a large share of the world's assets are coming to be existing in tax havens is precisely because these kinds of you know well-known marketed funds have. For tax purposes, located themselves in tax haven countries. Mom and pop does not have their money in a hedge fund that's registered in the Cayman Islands, but you know a state pension plan really might, a university endowment, plus wealthy investors do, and that stuff is that's totally totally legal, and. The policy question that, that Zuckman's book raises is, like, why is that legal? I mean, in a very formalistic sense, you could say, like, well, you know, the Cayman Islands, it's their own country. They can have whatever kind of tax laws they want. And, you know, we just happen to have – because the reason it works for investment funds is that for a sort of like a car company, right, most of the company's assets is like machines that build cars. But for an investment company, you have a couple physical assets, some desks and stuff, but the assets are financial assets, which are weightless and and can exist everywhere. So, you know, when this first trend first happened, you could say, okay, well, here's some clever people. They've like found a loophole, and they're just beyond the reach of the IRS. But when it goes on for years and years and years, you have a sort of accidental policy, right? Which is nobody ever put down a law in Congress that was like, maybe hedge funds shouldn't have to pay corporate income tax, because that never would have passed, right? But we have a de facto situation where fast food companies pay a decent amount of corporate income tax, because their assets are all here domestically, but investment companies just don't, because it's just a bunch of Americans who are all owned by Americans, whose investors are all Americans, but the company, quote-unquote, is in the Cayman Islands.
1: So so this, is a, this point of accidental policy is very, very important, and I want to stick on it for a minute. But first I want us to at least consider the question, or have you considered the question for me, because you know more about this than I do, of how accidental it is. So is there a good reason to have this as an equilibrium? Clearly there are companies and individuals who abuse it, Is there a case, if I had a a lawyer from one of these firms sitting here, is there a a positive case that we should have the system set up this way? Does anybody defend it? I don't think anyone would say that the system that we have is great,
0: but lots of people think, I mean, we we talked about this a little in, in the tax episode we did, people believe very sincerely that high levels of taxation, particularly on investment income, are damaging to the economy. And so they would say that if you had no loopholes, people could take advantage of. If you had to go work as a, you know, a fancy doctor, pay whatever percent on your income, then take that money, hand it over to a hedge fund that would then invest it for you, that would then pay a 35% corporate income tax, that would then kick money back to you and you would be paying a capital gains tax in your return, that after all this taxing, you would have no saving, no capital formation, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, what they would tell you is that what we should have is much, much lower tax rates. I don't think anyone would say that an optimal system is to have this like goofy Cayman Islands loophole. But it's because many people believe that tax rates in the United States are too high, that there's not a lot of political interest in closing these kind of loopholes, right? That in in Congress, like the status quo tends to win, right? So if you tried to say affirmatively, we're going to drastically reduce corporate income taxes and capital gains taxes, you'd have a hard time winning that fight. But also, if you want to close loopholes, you have a hard time winning that fight. So we have an equilibrium that you know, it does not reflect anybody's ideals exactly, but that reflects the principles of sort of conservative economics, that it's good to have light taxation of these forms of income. You know, I I think that that does not hold up really well. But another reason that it becomes difficult to close it, right, is that you could have a liberal saying, well, okay, what we need to do is just shut all these loopholes down and collect every penny of tax that's owed. And you often see estimates. This has been a really a big issue in the European press. So uh, a typical Guardian article will say, well, what if we actually collected the statutory rate on every single penny of income that's earned all around the world? And they'll say, it's like, well, we lost 50 trillion pounds you know, to, to tax evasion. I think a more realistic estimate would be to say that if we closed these loopholes and had like a global tax minimum, the rates would come down right? I mean, to an extent that's just political pragmatics, like you would have to do it. That would be part of how you would build a constituency for it. But also it reflects the fact that the face value rates in countries like the United States really are very, very, very high. You see uh, on the corporate income tax side, I think this is pretty famous, but the statutory rate is 35% and the effective rate is like 20%. And so if you did reform closed loopholes, you would want to get higher than 20 in terms of the actual rate that you're collecting. But going all the way up to 35 would be a a really high tax rate on income that, you know, it's accruing to a company. So then it would pay out to individuals and be taxed again. And, you know, you start getting into rates that are plausibly going to sort of diminish investment. I would not take at face value exactly what's being lost. It's a lot of money, but it's not all the money.
2: So we've talked about there are these loopholes that are basically just the system at this point they're not really loopholes that like some smart person is exploiting what would it look like if the US government said like yes we want to get serious about this this is a policy priority for us I know you wrote a little bit today that you know sometimes this gets worked into trade deals sort of but it just like hasn't been a big priority you know is this a thing where if we decided that yes this is a thing we care about we could really change it or Is it too challenging with dealing with other countries and, like, their various laws and regulations? Like, how much of this is just a problem of will versus, like, actual legitimate obstacles that would be just really hard to tackle? I think
0: on the individual income tax collection part of it, it would be almost trivial. I mean, I think that if the United States said to Panama, to the Cayman Islands, these other Caribbean nations, look, you guys, you have to maintain proper record keeping of who owns which assets, and you have to automatically report to the US government when US persons open companies like this, and you have to fully share the data, that these countries would have no ability whatsoever to resist. I mean, if you look at the history of US-Latin America relations, (laughs) we dictate what laws they can have about cocaine and and other (laughs) kinds of drug policies. We routinely invade and overthrow their governments. And it's telling that the tax haven countries that you see out there, it's not even countries like like Argentina, sort of mid-sized countries that have a history of resistance to these kind of things. Panama, uh, Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands, they very much want to be part of the sort of US-led global economy this is the market niche that they have found for themselves uh, and they're not going to they're not going to stand up against it in europe the sort of offenders are switzerland and luxembourg the technical political problem there is that because luxembourg is in the european union even though it's like seven people the European Union as an entity can't actually threaten Luxembourg with consequences because they're part of the decision-making process. And in a theoretical sense, the EU operates on a unanimity rule, so they can't change anything without Luxembourg agreeing. So they have actually addressed this in a number of ways because anti-tax politics is not as strong in Europe. Luxembourg really is a tiny country. And even though according to the rules can unilaterally veto EU actions. In reality, they can't do that. And so they have a lot of political wrangling. Luxembourg has never tried to genuinely stand alone. And so when they can get England and some of the other lower tax countries to side with them, you know, they stand up. Switzerland sort of gets to, to an extent, like free ride on Luxembourg's obstructionism. But what you what you see with all of these countries is that they have had these sort of banking secrecy regimes for a long time, usually dates back to World War I, and the original purpose really was tax avoidance. But it's been taken advantage of by criminal enterprises over the years, and we've cracked down on that. Particularly after 9-11, you know, the US government was not going to let people – finance Al-Qaeda through anonymous Swiss bank accounts, and Switzerland changes laws. They can't really resist this kind of thing. These bank accounts, they're not in North Korea, you know, something like that. The corporate tax stuff is different because, you know, you're getting into much closer to like the core areas of national sovereignty. Now, the world powers, I think, clearly could and probably should try to coordinate more on, on corporate income tax collection. But, you know, it's difficult for me to imagine the United States just, like, telling Ireland that its corporate income tax rate has to be 35% just because ours is— You could have a compromise, particularly within the European Union. It's actually a little odd that they have such different rates. But, you know, our states have different tax policies, and they, to an extent, engage in competition with one another. But it's just sort of the nature of life, right? I mean, countries want to be able to write their own tax laws. But saying that countries need to accept anonymous financial transfers, I think it's pretty
1: questionable. I have something I want to ask you on that, Matt. But before that, let's hear from one of our sponsors. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Redream. We dream is a nationwide project
0: that's taking a look at the idea of the American Dream. The idea is to discover, with online videos and local meetups, what it means to make it in the 21st century. Watch the Redream documentary series on YouTube as it delves into the hopes and struggles of average Americans. There's a new video every weekday from now through April 22nd. The project pairs online storytelling with over 30 community engagement events. WeDream is led by KCPT in partnership with 14 other PBS member stations all across the country. It's sponsored by ThinkShift, an initiative of the Bruce Foundation. Watch the videos, find
1: local events, and join the conversation at redreamproject.org. To zoom out on this controversy just a little bit, I think this speaks to something that has been very potent in the presidential election this year, and in a broader, more general sense, actually should be something we think harder about than we typically do. And, and, And one reason I think this gets underplayed in the political discussion is simply because there are not great tools to address it. The economy, as has become completely cliche to say, is increasingly global. And the most global members of it are the richest and most powerful, both the richest and most powerful countries like the United States, but also big corporations like Apple as opposed to the coffee shop on your corner, which probably does not have a lot of business in China, and very rich people who spend a lot of time traveling, have contacts in other countries, have the money to get people who know how to get things done in other countries. It was something that has been a theme of this election, certainly the candidacies of of Sanders and Trump, is a feeling that the global economy, as Sanders puts it, is rigged, that ordinary workers are getting a bad deal. And you'll often get, I think, a somewhat narrow economic response to this kind of argument that says, oh no, Bernie Sanders doesn't understand trade deals, and trade deals are better than he thinks. And I think there's some argument that trade deals are better than Bernie Sanders thinks. But this is, I think, a place where Sanders is really right and where you see a deep problem in global economic governance, which to a first approximation more or less doesn't exist at all because there are no institutions capable of doing it. There is a lot of deep unfairness in the global economy. There are things that rich people get to do that poor people don't get to do, that some of these tax efforts. If you did the equivalent of them as someone who makes $35,000 a year and lives in Flint, Michigan, what would probably happen over time is the IRS would discover where you were hiding your, your assets or your money, and you would get either very, very badly fined or potentially eventually put in jail. But instead here, we have allowed this system to spring up, where if you have enough money to do it in a really slick way, you actually know pretty well. Nobody's ever going to come after you. We've let this go on for long enough that you can operate with confidence. There are whole law firms that do this professionally that have really good confidentiality, encryption. And we just let all this go on. It is not a situation where we don't know what it is or how to stop it. It's a situation where we've just decided, eh, it's a lot of trouble. The people who we'd be fighting here have a lot of money. There isn't a very good way of doing it. And In a world where the economy is becoming global, much more rapidly than governance of the economy is becoming global, and where the players who benefit from that lack of governance have a lot of money and have a lot of international pull, these are the kinds of equilibriums you get. And while they're both, I think, a big deal in the specific, I think the fact that we have potentially 8% or more of the world's financial assets in these kinds of arrangements is a bad thing on its own, it's also bad because... It makes people mistrust the entire global system. They hear stories like this, and it correctly pisses them off. It makes them feel that they are getting the shitty end of a deal. And while they are getting that shitty end of the deal, they're being repeatedly told, no, the global economy is great. No, it's important for everybody to be that competitive. No, we're all in this together. And and that increasingly doesn't track for them. And then you get candidacies like Donald Trump's. So I think there's something broad here that that isn't just about this one event or this one even set of of tax arrangements, but a way this shows something where we have normalized kinds of behavior in the gap between how global the economy is and how global our governance and its political power is that that is really bad and is going to have long-term really deleterious effects if we're not able to figure out some way to bridge it.
0: It's really selective, too, because, you know, if, you guys probably remember when we were in college or at least when I was in college, uh, Napster exploded on the scene. And suddenly you could just download. Yeah, I was in I was yeah. in high school. Okay, fair also enough. Also in high school. You guys are young. Anyway, you could you could just download everything for free. And music companies, they didn't like that. So the government cracked down. And then, you know, some years later, people got this this other idea, right? And it was like, well, we could run a, a website out of Sweden. And it's going to be called the Pirate Bay. And Sweden has different intellectual property laws. And what we're doing there isn't illegal. And, oh, it's an airless global economy. You know, we can't be touched. Hooray for, you know, there's a lack of global governance, blah, blah, blah. But, like, guess what? It turns out big countries that didn't like all this intellectual property piracy told Sweden they had to change their laws. So Sweden changed their law. Pirate Bay got shut down. There's a nice uh, museum in Stockholm, uh, Swedish Technical Museum. You can see the Pirate Bay servers in there. It's a, it's a nice exhibit, and it's also a monument to the fact that you know global economic governance can be done when people decide they care. Mm-hmm. And you know, to me, actually, that is the greatest sleight of hand here. People will often want to say that. Things are happening or changes have to be made because of globalization. And so you'll even hear, I mean, I, I remember one response often to proposals for higher levels of taxation is, well, you know, it'll just be evaded, right? People can just move the money offshore, like it's a globalized economy. That was not the political system's response to IP owners, right? When, when Pirate Bay came up, they said like, you know what? We in fact have a, a Navy we have nuclear bombs i mean not that we threaten to bomb sweden even right but it's just it's just not true that the world is this like anarchic state in which we have no ability to do these things what we don't have particularly in the United States is a political consensus that we want to collect more tax revenue from wealthy individuals we in fact you know have quite the opposite right i mean it, th- there's no like shady like hide the ball stuff in the republican party tax plans like they want people to pay lower tax rates so of course they're not interested in Shaking down tax haven countries, but it's it's in some ways like I, I think you're right, Ezra, that you know the the system is rigged, globalization, blah blah blah. But in other ways, it's like it's almost more banal than that. That like we just have political conflict over whether wealthy people should be paying higher tax rates, and this is one aspect of it. And I do think though that it's telling that. Politicians who Bernie Sanders aside, but you know your Barack Obamas and your Hillary Clintons, people who who want higher tax rates, they though tend not to talk about this this kind of stuff, and they certainly don't talk about it in the tone of like moralistic outrage that you hear from Bernie Sanders, and that kind of thing. You know, it does raise people's suspicions a little bit about. I think that that kind of stuff, it's part of what has fueled some of this kind of insurgent mentality is like, how serious are they really about going after some of these things? You know, are you saying you're going to raise taxes, but you're going to keep winking at at these kind of loopholes or, or not?
2: So when you like look at this, then do you see anything like big happening in the US? Because I kind of watch this now and I think like it'll be this big story, the prime minister of Iceland will resign, like maybe some other documents will come out that really change the narrative as journalists pour over it. But kind of like thinking about the coverage I've read and like listening to you talk through it, basically it it, cre- it makes me think of a future where like we have this news story, journalists write about it, and then we kind of like move on to like whatever the next thing is. Is there a reason, like what do you, or are there other countries, like, like, you know, in Iceland, does this like unleash like a wave of like financial regulation or what do you see happening now? Yeah, so
0: I mean so one thing to say is that, you know, the reason this document leak is so big is that it's forty years worth of documents. Over that span of time, the rules actually did get quite a bit tighter in a number of these countries. And you know, my, my friends at the Treasury Department would want me to mention FATCA, F-A-T-C-A, which was Rolls a, right off the tongue. A, a law that, that was passed in the Obama years and in fact did sort of put the squeeze on this. The bilateral US Panama trade deal in twenty eleven, I think. Its tax provisions are relatively weak, and the fact that the U.S. agreed to relatively weak tax provisions shows it was not a high priority of the U.S. Trade Representative's Office. But they're not nothing, right? I mean, we did, as part of that deal, make Panama agree to enhance tax cooperation. Switzerland and Luxembourg had to change their rules in response first to U.S. pressure after 9-11, to EU pressure more recently. David Cameron And the UK had been saying that he wants to crack down on tax havens, which is significant because a number of the biggest tax havens are in this weird legal status where they're somehow part of the British empire, but not subject to English tax law and reasons I don't totally understand. You know, it's like they're a monarchy. So it's like the queen rules the Isle of Man, but parliament doesn't govern it or something. So he had said he wanted to make a push against this. And then one of the things that's in the papers is about uh, his father's weird offshore tax vehicles. So I think he's now under like more pressure than ever to show he's going to deliver. So I actually do think there's a lot of sort of stepwise progress on the individual income tax avoidance part. The corporate tax thing people have been talking about forever. I think the White House... Jason Furman recently like, wrote an article once again laying out the Obama administration's principles for corporate tax reform. Dave Camp had a proposal that's uh, been in sort of congressional limbo for a million years. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone ever knows what to make of it. But But I do think that this sort of basic thing where countries are letting people have completely secret accounts that they can – basically illegally avoid taxes on, has been chipped away at over the years, even as more and more money has come into them. And there's, you know, reason to think it might go away.
1: We should do a corporate tax reform episode sometime, despite the tremendous amount of preparation that will take. That would be awesome.
2: (laughs) Terrible and awesome.
1: Should we take a break and... and come back with some good news in our research paper of the week? This week's episode
0: of The Weeds is sponsored by The Great Courses. We've been talking a lot about The Great Courses lately, and we're excited about their new Great Courses Plus video learning service. It gives you unlimited access to this huge library of The Great Courses lecture series in so many fascinating subjects. You've got science, history, cooking, everything. Uh, so we really want you to try The Great Courses Plus. So they're giving our listeners a special chance to watch one of their popular courses, Understanding Investments, absolutely free. Understanding Investments is presented by award-winning professor of financial economics at Duke University, Connell Fulkenkamp. The course explains the fundamentals of investing for people who aren't familiar with the process, and it also covers areas that more experienced investors find beneficial. It's it's super interesting. Uh, You know, you can learn a lot. You can benefit on the bottom line. And with great courses plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. So now, the Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including Understanding Investments. It's a two hundred fifteen dollars value for free. You just go to thegreatcoursesplus. slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus. slash weeds.
2: So today is very exciting research paper of the week. Woo! <laughs> wow! I'm so you excited. thought we you thought we would be slow in the afternoon, but you have all this energy. I got here. so much energy for this all paper. Right. Well, it's from the Congressional Budget Office. And um, it has a very exciting title, Ezra, you know, stay calm, Federal Subsidies for Health Insurance Coverage for People Under 65, 2016 to 2026. Woo! And um, so the exciting thing, so I went over to the CBO for the release of this paper, and, and they do this every year where they kind of put out numbers on who they expect different federal programs to cover. They've been doing this since Obamacare passed. And the really interesting thing in this paper was just how sharply their Medicaid projections have changed. So last year when they put this out, they estimated that Medicaid, which is the program that covers low-income Americans, that is expanded by Obamacare, that would cover 14 million people, which is a sizable number. This year, just a year later, they upped that to 18 million people. So that's 4 million additional people who the Congressional Budget Office, which does forecasting about different laws in the United States— who they think it's going to cover.
1: 18 million by, by when?
2: I don't actually have the number, but I think by next year, by 2017.
1: 18 million is a lot by 18 million, or I think
2: it levels out around, levels out around there over the okay. decade for the period it covers. The thing that I found most, if those numbers did not blow your mind yet, the thing I found most astounding is that the size of Medicaid, it's actually grown since Obamacare first passed. And the reason I find that so astounding is that, fewer states are expanding Medicare—or Medicaid, sorry. When Obamacare passed, it was envisioned that all 50 states would expand their Medicaid programs to cover anyone who earned less than 133% of the poverty line, which is about $15,000 or so for an individual. And back then, when the law passed, CBO did this exact same report. And they said, you know, we think about 16 million people will get insurance through Medicaid— and, you know, at that point, they thought all states were expanding, but the Supreme Court changed that. And now only about 30 states have expanded Medicaid. And even with 20 states just saying, no, we're not going to do this, Medicaid has grown much faster than anyone expected. And it's, it was something that was surprising to me as someone who's covered all these numbers that, you know, it's really a much, much bigger part of the Obamacare insurance expansion than anyone Really expected. So why is passed.
0: CBO so bad at this?
1: This is really <laughs> striking, though, because I, I want to make sure I understand exactly what you're saying here. Yes. So you're saying that when Obamacare passes, CBO does a Medicaid projection based on the assumption that every state will expand yes. Medicaid. We're now, whatever it is, uh, five years later, I guess six years later. Mm-hmm. And CBO is now in a world, knows we're in a world where not every state is expanding Medicaid. Texas is probably not going to expand Medicaid for quite some time if mm-hmm.
2: ever. Or Florida, which or Florida. lots of people.
1: And even so, we are now looking at projections over a reasonably similar time period mm-hmm. that now see higher Medicaid enrollment than yes. was yes. than we expect in 2010. Two
2: million more people enrolled in Medicaid with 20 fewer states Do they expanding. say why
1: that is? They do. Is it a good reason or a bad reason? Because one reason could be that the economy is worse than people thought, and so there are more people under the poverty Yeah, line.
2: So it's not, it's not really that. That doesn't actually come up in the CBO report at all. It's basically that enrollment, the people who would be eligible have signed up at much higher rates than expected. So one of the things we generally know about public programs is they often have very low participation rates. For Medicaid, about half of the people who are eligible for Medicaid typically enroll in the program. So usually you expect about half people just won't show up. What seems to have happened with Obamacare is that more people than expected showed up. When I was at the press briefing at CBO, one of the questions I had was, well, are you upping your projections because you think lots of states are going to expand or you think the states that have expanded, they're going to do really robust enrollment? And it's the latter. You know, a few more states will expand, but the thing that they think they miscalculated is what percent of the eligible population would enroll in the program? So I
1: remember when Obamacare passed, I had a really interesting conversation with Ron Pollack, who runs Families USA, which is a big health advocacy group. And he was saying that he and his group, and, and Sarah, I know you covered this at the time, were, were creating a consortium of folks. I think it was called Enroll USA. Enroll like, America. Is enroll what America. It became. And the idea was that Obamacare could actually cover many, many more people than than folks realized. That the CBO projections are based on an idea that only a fraction of the potentially eligible population would actually enroll. And so what we're saying here is that we have actually, at least in the Medicaid population, gone much further towards the total eligible population than we expected. Mm -hmm. That if we thought 40% of eligible individuals Mm -hmm. would enroll, then in fact it's been 60% or something.
2: Yeah, I think that's part of what's going on and how we got there. I think one is just the push around Obamacare, that with Medicaid, it's kind of a program that exists in the background. There's not usually a giant really big public push to get people enrolled that's happening across the country. Another thing I think that's important that doesn't get as much attention is that Obamacare made a lot of very technical changes to how one signs up for Medicaid that just made the process a lot easier. So they streamlined the enrollment process. So it can often be a process that involves a lot of paperwork, a lot of like going back and forth to social service offices. I cannot list for you right now the exact changes they made, but when I've talked to Medicaid advocates. And if you're someone who works on Medicaid enrollment, I'm working on a follow-up on this. So please email me and let me know if there's something I'm missing. But the thing I'm gonna email you. They can email me at Sarah at Vox.com and please let me know, you know, what you think is going on. What I've heard from the people I've talked to so far is that they think a lot of these really technical changes had a really huge effect and made it a lot easier to sign up for Medicaid. Oh, that's
0: interesting. You know, and this is a good example, I think, of a way that it's something people miss a lot in in politics, right? Which is that one of the main things that really gets covered in politics is what are politicians talking about? That, you know, it's the most sort of visible thing is, is what's going on there. And at no point during the Obamacare process did Barack Obama say, my big thing here that I'm really trying to do is just make it easier for poor people to claim the welfare benefits that they've long been entitled to. That was just not a stated priority of the Obama administration. But there were working in Congress and in the administration lots of earnest people who for years, if not decades, had felt that one problem in America is that it was too difficult for people who were eligible for social service benefits to sign up for them. And they went and did things that you know made a difference there. And it turns out it made even a bigger difference than CBO knew. But no one really at the time was talking about this. right? I mean, we didn't have stories saying it. And then when the political mood sort of shifts, right, and we're now in a cycle where we're like talking about the Obama legacy and things like that, rather than Obama pushing a contentious law in Congress, to an extent people don't fully know and appreciate the like full legacy of things that the Obama administration did on an anti-poverty front or on a single-payer expansion-y type front, because at the time they were doing the... The legislation, the marketing push was very much about, look, this is a pragmatic, centrist thing. This is about helping middle class families save money, blah, 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 blah. And there was zero interest in saying, like, actually, there's some people here who are just fanatically devoted to channeling money to the non-working poor. Yeah. So
1: I have one question about this and then, and then one data point to add. If I remember, and, and so you'll, you'll know if I'm wrong here, we are underneath original CBO projections around insurance exchange enrollment, yes? Yes. Do we think that there's been a migration for some reason? Do, do we think that we got that wrong, that what we're seeing is somehow one-to-one here?
2: So I think the thing you're pointing at, that basically the size of the insurance expansion is the same, it's just which program people are enrolling mm-hmm. in. Yes, I generally think that is true. I don't think it is people... Because you can't really make the decision of which one you pick. Right, it's not people it's like depending picking, on your income. It's depending on your mm-hmm. this was something that came up um, right when enrollment started that people are picking Medicaid. But, yes, it's about the same size of an expansion with different programs.
1: Yeah. Sorry. What I meant by the one to one question, and, and we may just not know this in the CBO report, was what happened at the Congressional Budget Office, either because of and as you said, it's not in there, but but I'm mm-hmm. curious about it either because we got the economic projections wrong or potentially because we had misunderstood who the population that needed Obamacare and would sign up for it was, that they were incorrect about which bucket the population would end up falling into. But it sounds like that isn't isn't a question. It's not.
2: I mean, the thing I would say, because I have talked to, for separate stories, folks at CBO about how they do their estimates. And the thing I've understood is it is very hard to project insurance expansions. There are not many historical examples you can look at and say, oh, that's like how I think take up will go. That's who I think I will sign up. We basically had two insurance expansions in the past 50 years. One was the children's health insurance program for low and middle income kids. And one was the expansion of drug coverage in Medicare. So all the forecasters at CBO, they basically have these two historical examples to go on, which are really different from the Affordable Care Act. So I think, you know, they made their best guess and their best guess on kind of, you know, this global level was right. The insurance expansion is just about as large as they had expected, but they, they overestimated exchange enrollment and they underestimated Medicaid enrollment for some of the reasons we talked about on Medicaid. I don't, Fully understand the underestimate of exchange enrollment, but the main
0: point is it it was a kind of coincidence that it it, it levels out to zero. Totally,
2: you could see both being the same size. And in
1: theory, if you had full Medicaid expansion across every state, we'd we'd be running ahead. But I want to add in something else here that I think is really interesting, and we don't always talk about about in this. The New York Times had a great story about employer based Mm -hmm. enrollment, and and what they showed in this story was that. Since basically 99 until around the time Obamacare passed, the share of Americans with employer-based enrollment was was dropping a bit. And when Obamacare passed, there was a tremendous amount of warning and discussion and concern that what would happen is called employer dumping, Mm -hmm. that employers would see that there's now this great thing called Obamacare, or this terrible thing called Obamacare, depending on their perspective, and that what it meant was they could stop offering health insurance to their employees and just let them get Obamacare, or maybe increase even their wages a bit so they could go get Obamacare, but the result would be that taxpayers would be paying subsidies where employers were previously paying premiums. That appears to be completely not happening, Mm -hmm. that, that since Obamacare passed, employer-based care has actually held unusually steady. It's been steadier than it was in, in the period previous to this. And that, I think, is one kind of a, a, a bit of a surprising result on, on an economic level. There were good reasons to believe employer dumping would happen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to claim some, some credit here and say that I was skeptical just because right now employers are under no obligation to offer health insurance. And so it never quite made sense to me why Obamacare would change their calculation. Their calculation is much more about attracting and retaining talent but nevertheless it was entirely plausible that would happen but the fact that it isn't happening so the fact that you have more medicaid expansion than you thought you know a little bit lower insurance enrollment than you thought but but nevertheless reasonably reasonably high and a steadiness in the employer based market means that on the overall in terms of how many total people are being covered which is really important mm-hmm. here that's actually going pretty well because you could have a world in which Obamacare is beating projections, but then what was happening was that people were falling out of the employer market and onto Obamacare. Mm-hmm. And so the the total number of insured actually was not going down yeah. in the way you'd hope.
2: I'd say it's going well in that metric. One thing, I mean, another metric you can look at is cost. And in that place, actually, all this increased Medicaid enrollment, it did increase CBO's projections for the cost of Obamacare over the projections they had. Last year. It's still actually under cost when you look at the God, there's so many numbers. When you look at the 2010 projections, it's still lower than that. But it is there is now a bump up in the price since last year. So if you were thinking about what's the cheapest way to get insurance, the exchanges tend to be more affordable because you're not providing as heavily subsidized coverage.
1: We talked on one of the very early episodes of The Weeds about the premium increases that were being seen in certain state Obamacare insurance markets this year, well, 2016, has that continued to be borne out?
2: So that will be interesting to see in 2017. We don't have 2017 rates yet. Blue Cross Blue Shields put out a pretty interesting and somewhat controversial report that the Obama administration quickly swatted back at, saying that our exchange enrollment is a very sick population that costs way more than our old individual enrollees that cost way more than people who get insurance at work. So they kind of threw this out there and said, like, we need some help. This is too expensive. HHS, you know, very quickly, you know, was said that there was methodological problems with the paper. They really tried to push back hard against it. So I, being the healthcare nerd I am, I'm very interested to see the 2017 rates and where they shake out. You know, I I think it's
0: it's worth saying that even though the total numbers came out similarly, that by having less employer dumping, less exchange sign up, more Medicaid expansion, and this kind of untapped potential Medicaid expansion in in southern states and Wisconsin— it means that the overall shape of what obamacare is is actually quite different from i would say where not even when the law passed but when the debate sort of began right that the united states under george w bush was a country with this fragmentary healthcare system where most working people got insurance through their jobs where a decent number of working uh, of, of working age people had no insurance, where we had kind of social assistance programs to get health care to poor people, and where we had this single payer program for the elderly, right? And I think when most like liberals have in their head this idea that like a proper country just has like a national insurance program, the idea was that Obamacare, without being total drastic disruption, was supposed to get us to something like that. It was supposed to put us on track to being like Germany or the Netherlands or Switzerland with private insurance, but like a national system that everyone was in. And it turns out that we actually got something that was much more like the trajectory that we'd been on all throughout the 80s and 90s, which was when Democrats have political influence, they spend federal dollars on expanding the health care programs for the poor. Right, That Medicaid was expanded a whole bunch of times in the 1980s, that s was created in the 1990s, that Obamacare, you know, it turned out that there was a big Medicaid expansion component. As it worked its way through Congress for cost reasons, it started relying more on Medicaid expansion than people had initially sort of intended. Now that it's in effect, we see that it's been even more Medicaid expansion than, than we knew. And if you had sort of started this whole thing back in 2007 in the primary process and Democrats in the primary trail had been like, what we ought to do is put a lot of money into expanding Medicaid, I think people just would have reacted emotionally and intellectually to that very differently than to this idea of we're going to have a universal health care program.
1: Well, to cut that point a little bit differently, I think something you see here and in the, in the lack of employer dumping, which is obviously a very derogatory term, but in some ways I think is a Is a mixed blessing, actually, a mixed effect, rather. I think you're getting more coverage, but somewhat less actual healthcare reform than was part of the initial uh, initial vision. And also than, than I think Wonk certainly would have wanted. So I mean, if you think of the part of Obamacare that is real, really reformed, that is really trying to make insurance markets work differently and in a more competitive and more straightforward fashion, you're looking at the insurance exchanges. That's a place where you do not have the distortion of the employer tax break for the most part. That's a place where you have much easier shopping, where you have more competitive rates, where you have more options, where you have more transparency. That's a place where regulators really have their hands around the situation. And there's sort of better regulation about what insurers can and and can't do. That's a place where individual consumers can choose things that are relevant to their situation and what they need in life, not just whatever their HR department happened to negotiate a good price on. And, you know, if you looked at the Plans or were more darlings of healthcare wonks, like the, the the plan from Ron Wyden and Bob Bennett called the Healthy Americans Act. They basically moved everybody, um, at least who weren't who wasn't in Medicare, into things that looked like insurance exchanges. And with Obamacare, I think the argument for long-term reform was that you would have over time, and you still might over time, but you'd have over time a transition from the employer market into the exchanges. The exchanges would get bigger and bigger. That would create political pressure to let more employers into them, and they would become a much more central part of the American healthcare system than they are now, and, and they'd create a much a more competitive insurance-selling space. But I think you're not really seeing that. I think you're seeing the the insurance markets are growing, but not as fast as you expected. Employers do not seem desperate to get out of health insurance, which is something you would sort of need them to be in order to see that happen. And so Obamacare is covering a lot of people, and it does have a lot of reforms, particularly on the payment side, that I think are promising. But in terms of the way it could totally transform the insurance market, I don't think it is moving as quickly along that pace as some reformers had right. hoped.
2: When I talk to health insurance executives about the marketplaces, the thing they'll say, oh, this is great, this is changing our business. It's kind of like this small thing that's not that expensive, so they'll keep doing it, but they're like clearly not making a lot of money on it, but they kind of like feel bad pulling out of it. So they keep like going along because it's not going to kill their business, and they kind of feel like, it's the good corporate citizen thing to do. On what you were saying, Ezra, the health insurance marketplaces, I think, were always kind of seen by the media as like the core of Obamacare. Like, this was the thing that had changed. I remember when you know, the laws, the insurance expansion started in 2014, we started getting enrollment numbers. And at the beginning, people, the numbers were very high for Medicaid, very low for the marketplaces. And you'd see a lot of coverage being like, oh, well, those are Medicaid enrollment, those don't really count. What we really cared about was exchange enrollment, or
1: even people to say Obamacare signed up X, and it was only right. exchanges.
2: Yeah. So, and and if you tried to include Medicaid people, they'd be like, "Oh, well, you're padding the numbers; those are Medicaid signups." And so there was kind of this, you know, narrative that developed, and you know, maybe it's because Medicaid was around already, the exchanges were shiny and new, that like that was what Obamacare was. And I think when we look back at the legacy of ACA at least from, you know, what we see right now in these CBO projections and some of the things happening in the marketplaces, the legacy will be much more heavily grounded in expanding this this program for low-income Americans and making it easier to sign up for, which is a less sexy but also meaningful accomplishment. But it's
0: less, it's not just that it's less sexy, right, but that it has less of the intellectual aspiration, yes. right? I mean, Ezra was talking about this, but there have been a sort of a long series of like, climb downs from a kind of what you would draw up in a seminar room. Like this would be a more rational healthcare system. And then it's like, okay, but we have a healthcare system. And, you know, you have interests and you just have like human beings who don't like change. And so it's like, how can we get from A to B? And the exchanges were the part that was meant to get us from A to B. And the idea was, first, you will have on the exchanges people who currently don't have healthcare. so. They're not averse to change. And then the idea was: well, you'll have some gentle incentives that kind of lead maybe new companies to just like not go down the employer-provided route. Or maybe there will be like not so much employers dropping insurance that we call it dumping, but you know, gently, gently, people are gonna transition via the Cadillac tax and, and various other things. But the legislative process already. Ground down some of that, and we've seen some more grinding down in terms of backlash to the to the Cadillac tax, things like that. And so it, it's very meaningful. Obviously, if you used to not have insurance and now you have Medicaid, like that can be a really big difference in your financial well being. Although also, you could just get like money. But we've seen somewhat less transformation. Uh, we we've seen just less of those ideas that were percolating like before this started. Of, like the way healthcare ought to work is like this, right? And Obamacare's point is supposed to get us to be more like that. And expand Medicaid was never anyone's idea of like how it should work.
2: Although I will say there was, and you spoke about this earlier. There was some like here's how it should work to sign up for social services. Yes. and there is an experiment happening there that I think is quite successful and getting less attention than like the lofty ideas of, like, here's how our insurance marketplaces work. No, no,
0: no, no, that's very true. And it's quite relevant to, I mean, uh, probably a whole range of programs and things that state governments do. I mean, mean, a a lot is learned, but it's just that those, I mean, I I just remember these, like, very intense pre-2008, 2009 arguments about, like, how should health insurance be? And it just feels to me that, that all that has been less relevant to what's happened.
1: Yeah, I mean a lot of the intellectual energy around Obamacare was about how to cut cost, right? I mean, it's driven by, you know, President Obama, who cared a lot about cost cutting and, and seemed very was very convinced by that as the single long-term driver of budget deficits. It's driven a lot at that time by Peter Orzag, who first at the Congressional Budget Office and then at the Office of Management and Budget had really pushed the idea that the central fiscal challenge was bending the cost curve. So there's a lot of ideas about how do you cut costs, and a lot of interesting experiments there. At the same time, there was a lot of moral energy, and I think a more surefooted path towards expanding coverage. And Obamacare is doing some interesting stuff around costs, some of which I think is being promising. Uh, again, on the payment side, there's some interesting things happening, and we should we should probably do a, a yeah. payment reform episode sometime. But on on the insurance market side and some other sides, I think is is not being as transformative as as advocates hoped. But the insurance expansion in its own way, because I think it had more just direct, blunt force policy behind it, is is working out pretty well. And to be fair to the reformers, costs have fallen, right? And so we can have...
0: There's a kind of pundit argument as to like, did costs fall because of the cost-falling yes. things in Obamacare or didn't it, which is fine. But it's like, if you're running a healthcare system... And your costs are falling.
2: And your costs you want are to... growing more slowly well, going just more... to Sorry, be annoying and the bo- correct. The, the point is, is I, on a high level...
1: Annoying the... and correct is, I think, the weeds tagline, hopefully. <laughs>
0: on, on a high level, the cost curve is bending, which to an extent, whether it's a coincidence or just a couple measures have been amazingly successful, objectively puts less pressure on you to... more things to control costs, right? right? If costs were ballooning out of control, people in HHS, in the White House, would probably be running around like, oh my God, like, what are we going to do? But since costs are falling, they're instead having their press secretaries run around and be like, okay, what's the most credit we can plausibly claim for this? Right?
1: Because one way or the other, they're going down. So, like, there is no... Because conservatives... Uh, Going down so fast, like, some of the policies in Obamacare that would have triggered if they were going up have actually not triggered. So we don't even know how it The death panels have not arrived for us. And and conservatives said which is not like a
0: crazy fear was like well if you expand coverage costs are going to explode right and that just hasn't happened if it had happened obamacare would have a big problem to
1: to your point about projections and and this was true a year or two years ago there's a center on budget and policy parties chart i don't know if it's true literally right now but the cost of national of government provided health care in this country right now with Obamacare is lower than pre-Obamacare projections without Obamacare mm-hmm. because that's how big the, um, the, the reduction in overall system-wide costs are. Now, a lot some of that reduction certainly is for bad reasons like the recession, but, but it's still an impressive stat. Mm-hmm. And with that. And with that. Thank you for listening. And thanks, uh, thanks to our producer,
0: AC Valdez. Thanks to our sponsors. And uh, keep on, well, keep on rating us on recommending this podcast to sharing your friends. it with your
1: friends on social media i uh, hear sites. social
0: media is popular um and also you know if you happen to be the host of a rival podcast like planet money you <laughs>
1: might want to recommend us to your listeners and if you're looking for a rival podcast my interview podcast the ezra klein show might be of interest to you i'm mira Tandon from the center for american progress this week and grover norquist next week